Now, for me, there's obviously two types of renovation. There's structural and cosmetic. Um, I think you just want to have a passive plan and end up in a cosmetic place where we're not doing the development application. We're not worrying about the, the big costs of renovation. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show is a code cracker. We're going to dig into being an armchair renovator and why certain properties today in a deteriorating dwelling marketplace absolutely are a bit of a no-go zone for investors who like to have a passive approach to owning real estate. I'm going to talk to you about renovation today. Of course, a big part of my journey today is simply sharing the last two decades of my experience as a property investor, learning about capital growth, learning about strong rental marketplaces and yields, and of course, finding potentially those ugly duckling hotspots which turn into a diamond. I really want to give you some great insights today. If it's the first time that you've joined me, I want to welcome you on board. I tell you what, there are some rules around really the urban property investor. And I think the biggest rule is play me in 1.5 speed. Get your life back. You don't need to listen to me and every single word in normal time. Yes, time is money. So get your time back. Play me in double speed. I don't sound like a chimp monk. And I tell you what, the other rules are I'm a tad gauche. Yes, gauche. Gauche is kind of like a French word, which means I offend people, but people kind of like me. So if I'm offensive and you like me, I am gauche. Uh, in fact, I have a middle name. My middle name is Billy Bud. Uh, but really, if, uh, if I was to have a word as a middle name, I'd be Sam Gauche Sager. So uh, yes, if you find the show a little bit repugnant, but you love to keep listening, really, uh, that is because I am gauche. Yes, my middle name is Billy Budd. I was, uh, I was born on the way to a famous play, a play called Billy Budd. And uh, Billy Budd was uh, really a book in its commencement. It was a book by the same writer who wrote Moby Dick. It was about a sailor and my parents were on the way to see a play about Billy Budd. And guess what? I popped out in my gauche little manner, my offensive manner, and uh, sprung myself into this world. So, my name is Sam Billy Bud Saggers. Thank you for joining me. And today, we're going to cover some hot topics around the idea of renovating. And I tell you what, I think one of the biggest pitfalls right now in the real estate economy is much of the dwellings which are available for sale are becoming very subpar. Of course, Australia is an aging community, an aging marketplace of dwellings. And really, I want to help people understand renovation from a passive level, from literally sitting in your chair at home, rather than necessarily doing the block and getting on the tools. So today we're going to talk about renovation 
And I really want to talk about renovation from an armchair level so you don't necessarily go out and buy yourself a massive project which is full of headaches. I think we've all heard of those horror stories of people buying properties where there needs to be a full roof replacement that can cost $50,000, $60,000 or uh, a property where the backyard needs to be dug up and all of a sudden there's plumbing issues and piping issues or a full electrical uh, need to replace the electrics of a home. Renovations, despite what is often portrayed in the marketplace and on TV, are absolutely expensive. So I want to talk to you about how do we make money out of being a renovator and doing it at a cosmetic level as approach to a large full-scale attack on the real estate marketplaces. Now, the reason I really do talk about cosmetic renovation as opposed to large-scale renovation is I am completely useless as a tradesperson. The best I can do is probably waffle around Bunnings looking for a light globe as opposed to kicking down a wall and rebuilding it and adding extensions and bathrooms to properties. If you're one of those people who is capable of doing that, all power to you. Today's show is really designed for people who really aren't capable of doing that and would prefer to look at uh, ideas around renovations which you can manage from home or even just get your property manager to do for you. Remember, large-scale renovations are things like properties which need a development application, maybe a building application, structural certificates, maybe some sustainable reporting certificates around the new green economy, um, and really uh, a project, more like doing a small development, if anything, and because they are really larger to tackle, they need project timelines, they need feasibility costs. And of course, for the average property investor that is spending maybe $100,000 of cash, a lot of them become uh, challenging to actually get involved in. What I'm going to talk about today is really at a cosmetic level, uh, properties which you can add some paint to, which you can fire up and look pretty good, maybe spend a dollar and get $2 back on your money uh, and can really be handled at a basic level for people to uh, know that if they're going to own real estate, they have the capacity to also add some unique value along the way. Now, as you know, I teach the 4X growth plan. The 4X growth plan is just a simple plan that you go out, you buy a property which you can get at a good price. Potentially that's something where you're negotiating well, uh, potentially something where you can, um, you know, give yourself time to settle. Um, you've got to work out how you're at going to add value from day one, right? And day one can be things like a delayed settlement, buying off the plan. It can be things like getting a discount below market value, getting a discount below valuation. It can also be things like subdividing or amalgamating or knocking down and even rebuilding. And in the beginning, you just want to work out how to feasibly make a little bit of money 
from your activity. Remember, when we, I guess, benchmark what a good result is in real estate, a good result in real estate is the is fundamentally your asset that you buy va- doubling in value in around sort of 15 years' time. So if you go out and spend, you know, $600,000, it'd be great to come back in about 15 years' time, see that asset worth $1.2 million. So remember, the ad value usually adds uh, of buying well around 10% of this format. But then you've got other growth formats, things like locational growth, which is probably even more important than just adding some value. You can add value in a marketplace no one wants to live in and choose the wrong location and you're off to a bad start. I always say this, you can renovate, subdivide, develop real estate, but you can never change its location. The second growth strategy is location. The third is the market. This year in 2021, the market is going gangbusters everywhere. So we're going to get a lot of market growth. The fourth of the Forex growth plan is what I call behavioral growth, things that will transform the assets appeal uh, at a niche level. Things like, is the property in a good location so people can walk? Is the property elevated and maybe gets, you know, a nice breeze? Is the property functional and gets very good livability score? Is the property connected to, um, you know, a good third place designed around wellness? Does it score well? Behavioural growth. But actually, the Forex growth plan and how I've always used the Forex growth plan actually leads to a fifth X. Yes, shock and awe, a fifth X. And for me, my properties that I buy, I am what you would call a 10-year renovator. In other words, the asset I buy today, I don't actually add value through renovation for around a decade. The reason I do that is I uh, fundamentally in my acquisition phase of building assets, don't want to put my money into a renovation without seeing a result of the real estate first. And what I mean by that is obviously renovation is capital intensive. It sucks your cash flow. And so if I can avoid renovating for 10 years, for me, that is a good use of my money because I potentially, instead of renovating a property can actually go out and buy a second or third or fourth property. And in my situation, went out and bought uh, bucket loads of real estate. So if you can imagine, you start by buying well, choosing a great location, following a great marketplace, choosing a great behavior that influences your real estate. And then year 10, you come back to adding value to your real estate and going again. And for me, I've used this logic over and over and over again because if I buy something really good today in 10 years time it's going to have lost appeal but if I can uh, use the money I've already made out of the forex growth plan in the beginning to pay for the renovation and then see more value added well for me that is smart I don't want to use my cash to renovate I want to use my equity to renovate. And I'll explain a little bit more about that as we go. But I think today we have to be very 
careful of the very old real estate conversation. Quite often, I think it is portrayed that older real estate is for some reason so much more appealing in value than say a near new property or newer property. And whilst that is a general conversation or generic conversation, uh, a lot of property is fundamentally past its best. And if you look at properties, say, 40 or 50 years old now, their life left in that asset is questionable. Meaning, potentially, if you go out and buy those assets and you're not going to fix them up from day one, you're going to be uh, subject to a property which is fundamentally harder to offload, a property that has limited tax benefits, usually larger vacancy periods because people don't see the appeal in the asset, rent appeal potentially which is dropping, not increasing, Uh, a high maintenance program for an asset, and of course, the biggest mistake most people make is not actually factoring in the capital cost to improve the asset to begin with. In other words, there's a property on the market for 600000 there's one on the market for 450000 the $450,000 one's 50 years old. What is the cost to improve that asset? Well, once you do the mathematics, you would find that quite often it can't even be improved and really the best purpose for it is to be knocked over. Now, for me, I teach really in design there are four types of property. Dead property, in other words, real estate, which is fundamentally dead. You cannot breathe life into it. You can't fix it. It's, it's gone, right? And that dead real estate can be really good to buy, to knock down, to rebuild on top of and recycle. Then there is dying real estate. And I think too many property investors fall into the Uh, I guess, challenge of buying dying real estate. They don't realize there's capital costs. And with dying real estate, there is life support costs. You have to support the asset by fundamentally propping it up with constant repairs. You've got to feed the beast. As I have alluded to, this stuff becomes a real problem to building more wealth because you're fundamentally feeding a dying property as opposed to saving more to just go out and buy really good functional real estate. Then in society, there is dysfunctional real estate, and that can be both newer and older real estate. Again, dysfunctional real estate is real estate you want to avoid because quite often it's just too hard to create further and better appeal into the future. Today's show is about renovating as an armchair renovator. So we don't want to buy dead real estate to renovate in the future. If we're going to do the 10-year renovation program, which I'm fundamentally a massive fan on, you don't want to be buying dying real estate. And of course, you can't even renovate dysfunctional real estate. It is so dysfunctional. So we don't want to get involved in that. What we are looking for is really a desirable property, which has some really good floor plans so that we don't have to come back in 10 years' time or whenever we choose to pull the trigger on a renovation, to fundamentally throw lots of money at renovation. Now, here's the thing, right? If you were to look at the 5X growth plan, yes, the 5X growth plan, 
you've got property uh, property growth from buying well, location growth, market growth, behavioural growth. But then if we throw in renovation as a rebirth growth strategy, you can make a lot of money. And again, I'm a big advocate of sharing the 10-year renovation. Buy well, choose a good spot, get a great market, add some behavioural influences and come back in 10 years. Now, I've done this over and over and over again with my portfolio. Remember, I don't want to use cash to renovate. I want to only renovate if my asset has gone up using the Forex growth plan to use that money to make more money. So if I look at some properties which I bought uh, in the past and have gone down and renovated, I'll give you an example. I bought a property for uh, 400 odd thousand dollars um, in 2007 in Dulwich Hill, Sydney. Uh, at the time, the property was worth around 480. I picked it up for 400,000. I used discount to buy the property. I just simply used my uh, mouth to get a discount. That property uh, I bought um, was well and truly uh, secured. Uh, Dulwich Hill is about six kilometres from the CBD. And that property, um, as you can tell, I, I bought well. I got literally um, more or less uh, about a 15% discount on the way in. So I bought with value. By 2011, that $400,000 property was worth $500,000. The reason it was worth $500,000 is, for one, I got a discount. But secondly, the location started to become really popular. The light rail, for example, was being extended to Dulwich Hill. And that transport coming into that suburb was redefining the suburb. It was being redefined by the tram. And so all of a sudden I was getting location growth. The location was becoming more and more popular by virtue of uh, really a urban rebirth. So 2007, got a discount. By 2011, I'd made $100,000. Remember, there was zero market growth by this point of the Sydney marketplace. There wasn't a booming market. It wasn't the market making me money. By 2016, though, the market had kicked into gear and that Dulwich Hill property had jumped up to around $750,000 in value. We had the Sydney property market boom. And that took the asset well and truly up in value. And of course, behaviorally, in, by around 2018, again, this ugly duckling suburb had become really popular, but also because my property was set right on top of a park, behavioral growth, um, lots of people living in a city, all of a sudden, the idea of being able to walk to coffee shops and walk to beautiful parks was becoming a thing because as a suburb starts to um, get real demand, all of a sudden streets get more demand and of course properties and their location start to be worth more because people go, well, that side of the street's got the park, that side of the street's got the behaviour, I want to live over there. 
By 2018, that $400,000 asset in 2007 was now doubled in value. It was worth about $825,000. But what we were starting to see in 2018, brand new properties were being constructed nearby in the same suburb and two bedrooms were fundamentally being sold for around a million dollars. Now, those brand new two bedrooms were fundamentally much nicer inside than the asset I had bought in 2007. So as you can imagine, my asset is now starting to fall behind. It's not the first one to be rented. It's a bit of an ugly duckling. It needs some love and attention. However, what we do know is between an older uh, secondhand property and a brand new property now, there is around a $200,000 difference. So how do I make up the ground on the brand new asset? Well, fundamentally, I probably never can. But for me, I went out and I spent around 30 odd thousand dollars new paint, um, new uh, kitchen, uh, cupboards, um, uh, new flooring, uh, new blinds, just aesthetic stuff. And that took the value from around $800,000 in 2018 to today being worth around $900,000. That $30,000 which I used after making equity 10 years later made me another $100,000, a pretty good use of my money. Today, that asset sits circa $900,000 and is absolutely appealing to the marketplace the 5X growth plan. Now, renovation is without question a strategy that people quite often want to use. Um, but again, I'm a big fan of being an armchair renovator and doing it out of equity rather than cash. What we can work out though is the nature of supply usually means build costs tend to go up. So obviously what that does is it creates room for more growth from your existing assets. Now again, I think a lot of property investors miss this one and you might own three properties already and be wondering how the hell am I going to save or get equity out of those assets? Well, the reality is there's potentially equity in what you already own. So, uh, you, as a property investor, just need to understand that right now there is a massive upgrade movement occurring in the marketplace. And if your assets relate to what people want, certainly you could be able to extract equity out of it. We are seeing a real uh, exchange of demand at the moment. Upgraders want a better home and will rent or buy a better home if it's uh, well-designed. Downsizers don't want to downsize to a weird, creepy place. They want to downsize to something functional, something uh, really nice designed. And that's why you're seeing downsizers pay one, two, three, four million dollars sometimes for a beautiful three or four bedroom uh, apartment. You know, they're downsizing to some nice stuff. They've made a lot of money out of the real estate economy and are spending it. You're seeing first homebuyers actually 
be socially engineered to go and buy brand new. Uh, again, everyone is looking for functionality and something modern and most supply is rubbish. 75% of real estate is uh, needs to be demolished or is decomposing or dying or fundamentally dysfunctional. And again, I think if you drive around most streets of Australia right now, there are tradies upgrading lots of properties at the moment from this very uh, decomposing marketplace. And what's so staggering about that, those renovations are fundamentally massive. They're a massive cost. And again, um, this is where I think future capital costs are something that a lot of property investors fail to recognise. And they enter this kind of mindset that they'd rather be a slumlord than a landlord. Now, I can tell you, I am both a slumlord and a landlord, and there is a big difference. I own one slum, and I constantly need to uh, make sure it's um, uh, upgraded. I'm constantly fixing things. Um, tenants never stay for a very long period of time because they hate the slum. And then I'm a landlord, and I've had literally the same tenants in some assets for over a decade because they just love the property and that it's really functional and doesn't have ongoing problems. So how do you work out kind of like future capital costs for an asset? Well, it is a little bit confusing and I just have my rule of, rule of thumb, which I call the 1030 plan. And I'll explain the 1030 plan. Basically, every 10... Uh, assuming you're buying an investment, and, and I will caveat this, if you're buying multi-million dollar properties, the renovations can be extreme, right? People drop a million bucks renovating uh, homes around Australia. So again, assuming most listeners are probably buying a five, six, seven hundred thousand dollar asset, not a uh, you know two million dollar home that needs a one million dollar upgrade. Um, Assuming we're talking along those lines, I, you, I teach the, the 1030 plan. So if you're looking at an older asset, every 10 years, you want to add 30,000, sorry, every 10 years of age the asset is, you want to add around $30,000 of expected future capital costs to bring the property back to life, okay? So... A 1970s three-bedroom house um, would fundamentally be five decades old or 50 years old now, and that would need around $150,000 worth of future capital costs to be budgeted in to bring that house to life. That's things like budgeting in potentially a new roof, potentially new gutters, potentially new fencing, potentially digging up the backyard, putting in new pipes, potentially uh, bringing in some better thermal ratings to the property. So again, like quite often we have this kind of notion in our head, we buy the 1970s property and all we need to do is give it a lick of paint and, uh, you know, get a flat pack kitchen from Bunnings and, you know, away we go. Whilst there is minor validity in that, um, it is very superficial to own. If you're 
flipping and you want in and out and you, you're literally not holding the asset, you may get away with it because what you're fundamentally doing is bullshitting the marketplace and hoping the marketplace believes your bullshit around the renovation or the fixtures and fittings and inclusions of the asset. If you're going to hold the asset though, it becomes a completely different kettle of fish. So for every 10 years, at about $30,000 worth of capital costs, a 1970s property uh, has around $150,000 worth of capital costs. Um, and again, units can be a little bit cheaper, but units also uh, fundamentally usually have a ongoing sinking fund, which is fundamentally uh, looking after the outside of the building. So realistically, it's the same mathematics, except that you are, you are usually paying for the capital improvement of the inside and your sinking fund is uh, arranging a future capital works program for the outside of the asset. So for a unit, potentially every uh, 10 years, add $20,000 to the, the, the internalized capital works fund. And uh, that might mean for five decades, a 1970s unit, you put away or you budget around $20,000 for that 10-year uh, period. So five decades, $100,000. And that's things like re-waterproofing bathrooms, gutting a bathroom, putting a... Um, a bathroom in, uh, new kitchen, <clears throat> new new flooring, new um, all sorts of things. And again, we have to weigh this up, that is it actually better to renovate that property and spend that $100,000 renovating it? Could we recycle that back out of the asset? Um, or are we better off just buying something newer and... Uh, fundamentally not being even involved in this kind of conversation and use that $100,000 just to buy a second property and then go into a more tax minimization strategy. Now, I, I've been here, done this. Um, I've seen assets that, uh, for example, you know, people buy a $250,000 um, property in Melbourne before the boom in, say, 2008, um, the house has gone on to be worth half a million dollars, but now it needs $150,000 spent on it. So that capital growth from 250 to 500 is 250, but now we're minusing $150,000 out for the capital costs. So we actually, through the boom, have only really made uh, $100,000 on that asset whereas other newer assets have gone on to double in value and don't need the deductible future asset, asset uh, capital costs um, contributed to it. Now, I hope you guys are following along. It's always a bit hard on a podcast. And I'll tell you what, I'm starving. I want to order Uber Eats. I need something delivered. I am so famished. I wonder if I can do that and land it before the show ends. Should I take the risk? Should I do the double? Uh, will it confuse me? Will I lose my train of thought? But one of the advantages of uh, buying, I guess, an asset which has got some good depreciation as well means your cash flow position is going to be much better 
And then 10 years later, when the depreciation's virtually disappeared and your asset is, has depreciated, you've made the tax benefits of depreciation and now you're going to circle back and get the renovation going with obviously uh, the idea of using your equity to renovate. Now, depreciation has you know, sort of two components. And today, the depreciation laws in Australia were, were changed <clears throat> uh, as of a budget in, I think it was 2019. But you've got uh, fundamentally two parts to, to depreciation. Um, one is Division 40, which is your planet equipment. Planet equipment is things like, you know, uh, inclusions. Like you might have you know, a stove or, or a dishwasher or flooring. All of that is considered plan and equipment. And today, you can't necessarily depreciate that plan and equipment unless you buy it brand new from the beginning. Uh, Division 43 of the tax rules basically are your capital works depreciations. This is your building itself. Fundamentally, goes backwards. It gets older. It ages and you can claim tax on, um, obviously, that loss of depreciable value, loss of that building fundamentally going down in value over time. And again, as long as you've bought a property that is younger than 1987, you can get depreciation on it. The newer, the better. And fundamentally, what that allows you to do is uh, not go backwards in cash flow to begin with, but go forwards. And I mean that in the context that, you know, in the past I've literally had five newer properties active at once and got a $75,000 check in my hand from the tax department to go and buy more real estate as opposed to not getting a tax uh, any tax back from the tax department having to dig into my own pocket to do the 1030 rule, which is fundamentally future capital costs. So again, new versus old, it's a big saving, right? You can, um, on an average property over 10 years, get, you know, 30, 40, $50,000 more in real cash flow from the government uh, by uh, buying a newer asset and you, you simply, um, you know, obviously that compounding effect of that fundamentally can even pay for your future um, renovation. So the divergence is pretty big. Once you factor in the, the 1030 rule of $30,000 every 10 years need, needing to be spent on future capital costs, and then you um, really sort of work out that, uh, well, you know, over... over the same sort of period, a 10-year period, if I get more tax deductions, I'm going to get another $30,000 from tax deductions over and above the idea that, um, you know, I don't have a tax minimization asset. Well, after 10 years, you've, you've missed out on probably $60,000. That $60,000 is a combination of future capital costs and renovation. In other words, if you buy too old... You're literally throwing away, um, you know, over fifty, over sixty thousand dollars in tax savings and money that you fundamentally have to go and spend. 
And again, the idea of that to me um, from day one doesn't make sense because I'll circle back in year 10 and do the renovation. So uh, obviously, you've only got so many $100 bills in your back pocket and that's why we need to think about when we're going to push the reset button on renovation. Now, for me, there's obviously two types of renovation. There's structural and cosmetic. Um, I think you just want to have a passive plan and end up in a cosmetic place where we're not doing the development application. We're not worrying about the, the big costs of renovation. I think uh, some people are capable of renovating and flipping. And when you really understand what that means... Well, in Australia, you've got capital gains tax. You've got to potentially um, take time out of your job to go and do the renovation. And for a lot of people, again, the idea of um, swapping their time at their job to do time to renovating fundamentally means they're changing career. And a lot of people are successful at doing the career change the only caveat to that is obviously borrowing money becomes a bit of an issue as well if you're going to transform from your day job to a full-time renovation is where you can do renovating flips um, and that's where you're spending uh, your labour rather than paying for labour to make renovation at a flip level stack up. Remember me, I'm hopeless at that and I'm not trying to bag that out in any way. I'm just a realist around who I am. I would prefer to get a discount by using my mouth rather than spending six weeks with a hammer, um, basically tactically working out how to renovate somewhere and then ending up being stuck there for four and a half months because my six weeks didn't really work out. I think if you've ever had a neighbour renovate um, next to you, you probably realise just how long a beautiful renovation takes. It's not quick. It's not something that is knocked up overnight. And I know we all watch the block and a week later everything's done. Well, to have 50 tradespeople on site is fundamentally a pretty big task. And as we know, um, pulling tradespeople together is tricky at the best of the times. I think it's important to um, maybe think about the idea of cosmetic renovation for the 5X growth plan. I think um, cosmetics is all about the idea of rejuvenation. If you look at my example, I fundamentally went through the rejuvenation concept rather than tackling a renovation uh, to begin with. I actually personally prefer knockdown rebuilds as a... Uh, as a technique to, to end up um, doing a project as opposed to a structural renovation. And, I mean, I have seen, um, you know, so many people walk into hazards when it comes to development renovations. There's no real solid starting point. Architectural plans need to be drafted up. Possible building code issues need to be thought through um, cost blowouts need to be thought through. Structural integrity of old buildings need to be kind of um, thought out. You've got hazardous materials which are quite often in older homes which are not um, currently suitable for newer homes. You've got 
um, environmental sustainability issues around older properties that also need to be thought through. Um, also, quite often, old properties have layout control issues where they're not functional. The floor plans in 1970 are not what people use today. So, again, uh, I think structural renovation is, is a real um, art form. Some people certainly can do it, but they're tackling $3 million properties, not $300,000 properties. And this is where I think quite often we get blindsided with uh, cheaper assets where there is little possibility of, of fixing them. Yes, the architecturally significant Edwardian home has potential to create money, but I don't see too many investors popping down to the uh, you know, multi-million dollar market buying them. So let's move on from that thought. If you like the idea of knockdown rebuild, for me, that's a better renovation strategy because you've got proper starting points. You've got the ability to design a property from the get-go as opposed to fundamentally trying to work it out on the fly. Now, I've seen people spend so much money on flawed assets just in architectural plans alone where even the architects are, you know, they'll take your money but they're like shaking their head like this thing's just impossible to fix so i think with real estate you need to also own real estate where there's future equity growth and future rental growth quite often doing a renovation at a cosmetic level it's really about the future rental uplift as much as the future capital growth uplift and again as a property investor i find that circling back after 10 years really does allow you to renovate, but also lift your rents up to a much superior standard. And a $30,000 renovation can quite often lead to a five to $10,000 rent increase for your assets. The rental effect is even more important than that. It's the attraction of better tenants, limited vacancy period, wealthier tenants who can sustain better rent increases and less justification for not putting the rent up. So the better your dwelling, the less interference you have with the subpar rental market. Now remember, I'm both a slumlord and a landlord. I can tell you when you start to buy inferior assets, you start to attract inferior people um, at a socioeconomic point of view, and they cause you more problems, more headaches than you can possibly imagine. Remember, we want to end up owning an asset which is attractive, which continues to be attractive the longer we own that asset. And when we do go back and potentially renovate 10 or even 20 years after buying something very functional to begin with, it's good to use what I call the three design logics. Now, I've done a complete podcast on this, so I'm not going to rabbit on too much about it. If you want to do the design podcast, it's, uh, it's in my series. I don't know what episode it is, um, but you'll find it. It's, uh, it's the design logic podcast. Now, one thing, if you are a new listener... Uh, all my podcasts are fundamentally real estate lessons. 
So even though you may be listening to this for the first time today, you can go back and listen to them all because most of them, 99% of them, really have no time-bound considerations. Um, And uh, thus, you can listen to the design um, logic. But there are three design logics, just to quickly touch on it. Functional design logic, behavioral design logic, and reflective design logic. And again, reflective design logic just works on the concept that if a property is designed where people see themselves in it, they get this reflection that makes them feel very good. Now, reflective design logic is quite often seen in brands. Like we end up uh, buying a Rolex watch because it makes us feel good about ourselves. Again, reflective design logic in renovations are all about making people feel like they uh, are going to get a better image. And that's where, like, you know, better flooring, better kitchens, um, uh, you know, splashbacks, all of this when people invite people over to their home, people go, oh, wow, I love your reflective energy. I love what you've done with the place. You guys are so cool. Reflective design logic is, is how properties end up um, being sold for more. Behavioural design logic is just the idea that if a renovation or a property has a behaviour in it, um, it can attract more more value. Now, a simple behaviour is having a bath. People like to have a bath. Um, I'm, I'm not really a bather, but some people love having a bath. So if you've got a bathtub in your property, you've created a behaviour of bathing and therefore it is fundamentally the market and valuers and everybody looks at it with more um, gusto, behavioural design logic. If you've got a behaviour that creates an action, it's going to make your property worth more. And again, as we renovate, we want reflective design in our renovations, behavioural design in our renovations and functional design. Functional design is just good floor plans, good flow. And again, I've done a podcast on functional design Um, go check it out. Functional design is all about how a property has circulation, how how you can move um, ergonomically around a property. Some floor plans are just terrible. You can't fix them. Some floor plans are just great and you can continue to layer on value year after year after year. Behavioral design, I love little things like creating a breakfast bar. It's cheap, it's cheerful, and it adds the behaviour of having breakfast at a little bar. Again, behavioural design logic. Remember, most home buyers today in 2021 want great designs, light interiors, functional kitchens, designer-style bathrooms, behavioural design in the bathrooms, outdoor entertainment, things like bigger balconies, bigger decks, or, or breakfast bars, things to... Um, feel really cool around the property and you've got even the new economy coming into play things like smart homes environment environmental reduction techniques on renovation and these things are, are really transforming what it means to own uh, real estate today so as an armchair investor Uh, as an armchair renovator, I'm very pro using the 1030 rule. I think um, particularly if you end up buying newer properties, um, you know, you don't really need to even renovate for the first 10 years. You can skip 
year 10 quite often and come back in year 20. And that means in year 20, your renovation is going to be anywhere from 30 uh, to $60,000 for a house or twenty dollars to $40,000 for an apartment. And again, by year 20 of ownership, one would conclude it's more likely than not you've made money if you followed the Forex growth plan. So you're not pulling cash flow out of your back pocket. You're fundamentally borrowing against your own um, equity to create even more equity many, uh, many times through. If you've never done a renovation and you don't know anything about it, you can get a designer to design um, some ideas for you. You know, things like you could get the designer to come up with a, a bit of a renovation plan. And I've certainly done this before where they've come back with like what type of light fittings to put in, what type of built joinery to add, um, what type of flooring uh, tiles um, would look best for um, a property and quite often an interior designer is very good at doing that where they have more, I guess, ergonomic skill than, um, you know, us uh, people who have other jobs. Um, and I certainly think the value of paying around $3,000 for an interior design um, refit on a home or a apartment is, is really worth it, absolutely. So quite often when people do their renovation, they uh, struggle with the, the idea of what comes first. And this is where people are just spending sort of thirty dollars or $40,000 on a small renovation. They struggle with the idea, well, do I put the floor in? Do I put the kitchen in? How does it generally work? And I think, you know, the biggest um, challenge for, for many people is they're sitting on a gold mine. They don't know they have by not renovating real estate they already own and extracting equity out of it because they just simply don't know how to create a starting point for renovation. Now, I think um, it's, I just have a few basic rules around it is once you do a ring around and you talk to the tradespeople you need to do your renovation, they are very helpful. They will more or less give you some very good timelines and timeframes and job order as to who goes first. Does the painter come before the flora, et cetera, et cetera. So once you do your little uh, ring around, you're going to create yourself a little bit of a project timeline. That project timeline is, is really something that fundamentally you can work towards. And I think um, there are some rules around renovating and I'll, I'll, I'll literally – um, you know, give you some. The first one is to talk to the right people. You've got to talk to the right people. You've got to build a team and that team's got to know what the project is and who goes first. And the contractors are very good. The second rule is, you know, use insurance, uh, the right contractors. Now, there's a temptation, obviously, to use unimproved contractors and quite often this just becomes a bit of a nightmare because they're doing things on the cheap. You want the right trades and particularly, obviously, in this day and age with so many people always getting, you know, in trouble from, from being sued and so forth that you've got trades with the appropriate licences. And after you do the renovation, you want to be able to make sure your maths and so forth 
are appropriate that you're not using cash, but you're also getting an equity return or a rental uplift return. One of the two. I will renovate even if I can get $10,000 a year extra and it costs me $30,000 to do it. That's a three-year uh, pay down of that investment. And then year four, it's total profit. But of course, I am dragging a better person to my asset and pushing my rental return up. Quite often when you push your rents up, your capital value of your asset also increases. So as a renovator, again, you want to avoid money pits, things like gutters, fencing, roof repairs, uh, floor leveling, plaster, plumbing, foundations, wiring, pest damage. All of the things, these things are non-profit items and the older your asset is, you fundamentally end up in a place where you're having to spend money on that stuff and it adds no value to the asset. It just sucks your money dry. You want to spend things on rejuvenating. And when we talk about rejuvenating, it's really simple. You want to rejuvenate your kitchen 10 years later, 20 years later, your bathrooms, your flooring, your paint, your fixtures and fittings, your window dressings, and your outdoor space. If you stick to those seven items, you're well and truly going to end up in a place where you've got um, a beautiful new property to own without overcapitalizing on the low-cost items like guttering. Like, how is guttering going to add any value to your asset? So again, these are some tips around being an armchair developer. Uh, if, you, if you like the idea of the 5X growth plan, don't be shy to do it because there's a lot of rhetoric around being involved in a high capital cost asset. And uh, let's face it, no one's telling you about the capital costs into the future. They're just telling you it's cheaper than a newer property. Well, of course it is. It's depreciated itself to being uh, fundamentally a future hazard. So thank you for listening to The Urban Property Investor. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed bringing you the podcast. I'm starving, so I'm getting out of here. Hey, tune in next week. We'll crack some more codes. Thanks for tuning in to The Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of The Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.